Hello, I'm Grayson Brulte, and welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today. If you haven't already, please kindly take a moment to follow and be notified when a new episode is released. With the rise of mobility companies going public, either through a SPAC or an IPO, and individuals finding newfound wealth, really great for the individual, but on the back side of that, you've got organized crime, bad individuals say, I'm going to target that person. That person's rich. Well, I'm going to target them. That creates a really big concern. So one of my friends' names is Brian Hurd, who's the vice president, chief of office at Aon Cyber Solutions. I said, Brian, company goes public. CEOs and executives have newfound wealth. They've got security problems. And Brian starts going through it all. And so we invited Brian Hurd on the podcast today to talk about the cybersecurity risks that are happening. And it's not just the risks that are happening to the individuals. It's also an increase in cost as we're seeing cyber insurance rates increase 40% globally, according to the CEO of AIG. That's a big increase. So you have security risks and you have cost increases. That's on the high net worth side of individuals taking a company public. And then on the other side of the house, you have individuals that you know responding to an email to, to grandma or an email to mom and the Nigerian scam shows up. Well, Brian explains to us Hill you know, spelling errors. Yeah, okay. Okay, nope, delete. This is junk. It eliminates 50% of the individuals. Well, the other 50% think it's real. They got past it. That's who they want to target. These are highly sophisticated actors doing very, very bad things. And Brian pulls back the curtain on the current state of cybersecurity today. And it was an awesome conversation. We sit back there and say, wait a second. My house isn't secured. Wait a second. My office is not secured. Wait a second. This is going to impact my life. I have to completely reevaluate my cyber hygiene. And that's what we brought you today. It's really interesting. And today's knowledge bomb is cybersecurity is important. Listen to Brian explain why and the impacts that it's having on society. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thank you, Grayson. And thank you to SAE for putting this on. You're very welcome, Brian. And prepping for this podcast and listen to a lot of music and was listening to the 1989 Billy Joel album Stormfront. And on that album, there's a song called We Didn't Start the Fire, in which Billy Joel sings, We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world is turning. We didn't start the fire. No, we didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Not a day goes by, in my opinion, without a cybersecurity incident. Or I mention the news. You turn on CNBC or CNN. Somebody's doing cyber for criminal use. Pulling this back, putting the media aside, what is the true state of global cybersecurity? Is it as bad as the news media makes it out to be and the fire's burning? To a degree it is. And I think it's gotten, as technology has become more a part of our day-to-day -day lives, the impact of a cyber attack now is having real world impacts. A hospital attacked and a patient uh, died as a direct result of a ransomware over in Germany, or the inability of a group of people to get gasoline because of a ransomware attack. Uh, those types of real-world impacts take this out of the realm of cybersecurity into the true realm of terrorism. You cannot get through your day-to-day -day life or your safety is endangered by the activity of an adversary group. So I, I do think the impacts are becoming more personal and more real-world. Um, and the scale of this is just becoming an issue for the lives of companies and the the uh, GDP of countries in terms of the scale of crime related to this area. 
And it's affecting internet entrepreneurs. For example, Anthony DeLauro, the co-founder of the Ethereum network, has publicly stated he's done with crypto out of safety concerns. Since 2017, he's had a security team. He can't leave his house or go anywhere. He can't go to the grocery store without a security team. Is this the new reality for famous entrepreneurs that create a technology that is well-known that you're going to get a criminal element or a bad actor says, I'm going to take this guy down? So I think on two fronts, and, and you and I have talked about, uh, about these in times, is for highly successful individuals, whether they are internet entrepreneurs or uh, magnates in other industries, extreme success and wealth brings with it targeting from groups that would either steal money from you or kidnap one of your children. That is a risk for significantly successful individuals and their families. It's always existed. However, more so for those that have grown up in the public eye. Secondarily, depending on what they do, protest groups or others that have a non-financial but more philosophical bent may also target them for harassment um, as opposed to direct financial uh, crimes. You mentioned philosophical bent. Is a lot of that jealousy because there was an article in the New York Post this week that a crypto trader in Brazil that was part of the insta-famous crowd brag, I got a Porsche, I got this, and threw money all over the place. Well, they found him and shot him dead. Is that is that the newfound reality for individuals that brag, that don't take the proper security measures? The fixation of a fan or a foe is an issue that's faced from John Lennon on in the history of being famous. I think that that's an issue, again, faced by highly public individuals. I don't know the particulars of the case in Brazil of that individual and what else they might have done that angered somebody willing to commit the act of murder. Uh, so I don't know the linkage between uh, their lifestyle and the event. However, in general, the vitriol that could come from those types of things is something you have to factor into your personal and family security program uh, if you find yourself or desire and make yourself that type of, of global voice. There was a big article in Bloomberg Business Week about this gentleman that ran an invoice scam. And he's living the high life in Dubai, bragging all about an Instagram, Interpol or the FBI, and put it all together to wait and tagged it to, to the guy. And he was printing millions of dollars from an invoice scam. Is that a common scam that you're seeing the targeting these corporations where the accounts payable just hits pay without much due diligence around it? I have seen multiple types of invoice and, and credential scams, a lot of times related to business email compromise or the compromise of an email box and then acting like a vendor or a member of that company. So the scam can come by somebody presenting you an invoice or somebody taking over your email and you, your company fraudulently presenting invoice to somebody else. For companies, a lot of us think a million dollar invoice. Well, obviously there should have been a check and balance. Depends, is a million dollar invoice a large invoice when you're buying jet fuel for a fleet, when you're buying pipelines for thousands of miles of pipeline, or when you buy a grain combine for $500,000 at a pop or more, they're getting more expensive, I'm told by a friend who owns a farm. Those types of things, the financial checks need to be in place for vendor management, for account management, some of them are cyber, others of them are, are the traditional financial anti-fraud programs. They do come together. So there's always a rounding error of financial fraud in the industry. However, there should be checks and balances in place for certain invoice amounts for those types of companies. 
do the cyber teams and these companies ever run just a simple Google search for the, the name on the invoice? If there's an individual's name on there just to see what might be there? Well, in terms of accounts payable and accounts receivable, I would hope that they have traditional Sarbanes-Oxley and related uh, controls of some type. Even a plucky startup ma and pa business should know if it bought a crane or a truck or a car or or some purchase of, of, of that magnitude um, and should have those checks. It, to get an invoice from somebody, if you're seeing the name for the first time on the invoice, how did they have the ability to invoice you? So a lot of times I think what it is is they use a name you're dealing with and then try and change the banking information. And that's the most often they'll find out somebody that does supply to you and then try and get a payment or two misrouted. And from the Strauss Freeberg side, you're retained by, let's call it Acme client. Can you go down that forensic route to uncover that for your client? Uh, yes, and we're called often in the middle of the night or, or when these things are found out, sometimes days or weeks later. Uh, the best uh, outcome is to try and find it as close to the financial transaction as possible. The first bits of forensics are the document itself, uh, the emails around the people that processed it at the client that was compromised or the person sending the invoice. So a lot of forensics around the email discussion, was this a known client? When was the banking information changed? What email did so? Was it an email or phone call or other type of social engineering? Uh, then, of course, depending on the client, we may coordinate with the uh, FBI or Secret Service to try and stop and or track the transaction. Um, and again, a lot of times it goes into what controls were in place and either ignored, overlooked, uh, or socially engineered. Uh, and then the forensics gets into, you know, is this the only invoice scam? Sometimes that one indicator is actually an indicator of a much larger problem that's been ongoing for some time. I hope that's not the case when we report to a client and we help them. Um, however, we are looking for that. Do some of these bad actors leave digital footprints? They try and delete them, but you're able through forensics to uncover what they tried to delete. Is that possible? Uh, yes, in, in some cases, yes. In some cases, no, depending on the systems in place at the victim and the uh, prowess or technical capability of the adversary. However, I'll say in general, with a lot of these scams, they don't have access to wipe their fingerprints off a lot of times but they'll use IP addresses that are throwaway, identities that are throwaway, and bank accounts that will disappear the minute after the, the transaction. But if they're using the banking system, a lot of the checks and balances there are helpful in tracing money. And ultimately, especially if they're a serial criminal like the individual you mentioned, uh, over time, it is possible, and we I've done it personally, and we've done it nationally, to trace the money and actually bring justice to those people. It's not instantaneous by any stretch of the imagination, so it takes patience. How does a bank account disappear? It's like a ghost bank. Is that all done in third world countries where there's no regulation and no oversight? Somebody gets an envelope in a pocket, opens the account, account disappears. Is that where all that fraudulent activity is taking place? In most cases, they use what are known as money mules, individuals who are supposedly hired as financial transaction experts or something to that effect, where the money is wired to a legitimate bank account of a money mule who then takes 10% and forwards the transaction via Bitcoin or, uh, or money transfer, Halawas or, or Western Union or others uh, to people in remote locations. So while there's a loss of that money in the transaction, 
uh, a lot of times uh, they have the cutouts of the money mules who end up holding the bag, so to speak. Other times they may use financial institutions that are questionable in, in questionable banking arenas. In one, a, a uh, airline paid $5 million for fuel to a Chinese bank. They'd never flown to China. Uh, so that was an oversight where it was a legitimate bank, but an illegitimate uh, account and transaction. The Bitcoin fraudsters aren't going to be in for a rude wake-up call. There was a big article today on CNBC where Senator Warren and SEC Chair Gary Gensler teaming up to try and stop this fraud. It, to, to them, it's a holy war. It's a mission. And so you're good luck on that one. But Brian, I want to put this into perspective because you've been doing this a long, long time. At 21, you co-founded the U.S. Navy's first cyber counterintelligence program at NCIS. What has changed since the program was founded to today? Are criminals getting more digitally savvy, more more complex, or is this a case of history repeating itself just with smarter, better tools? A little bit of both. I think what you've seen is organized crime at a global scale adopting cyber technology because they can steal as much, if not more money, or commit as much, if not more extortion without physical danger. They don't have to run into the bank to steal $100 million from a, uh, from a bank or to extort 10, 20, 30, $50 million from a US company for ransomware. So I think a lot of those are global organized crime improving its use of technology for traditional oriented crimes, extortion, other things. You also have you know, new criminals who were born in the digital age and know nothing else and are growing up at the various levels, whether they target small businesses for a smash and grab or they're the safe cracker going after a Fortune 100. But yes, and you're seeing new types of crimes, new types of impersonation, but it all comes down to an abuse of trust and uh, hopefully uh, checks and balances that, that stop these things from happening. And, and that's what it comes down to, especially on the financial transfer side. It comes out to, are you prepared? Do you have the right checks and balances in place before a change in banking information or an invoice of a certain amount is permitted to go out? With all the fraud taking rampant, Aon is an incredible insurance broker. The insurance markets are, are waking up and raising flags. AIG, one of the, I believe they're one of the world's largest insurers, they're increasing their cybersecurity insurance rates by 40% globally with the largest increases coming in North America. Why is North America seeing larger increases than the rest of the world? Is there a higher fraudulent activity or is this because a lot of the Fortune 500s are based in North America? What's causing that incredible jump in the North American cyber insurance markets? And thanks for asking. That is a great question about the role of the insurance industry. And I work for Aon, one of the largest brokers on the planet, and I'm in their cyber division was just coming off a call talking to clients about this very thing is the market is what we call hardening. In other words, the one of the roles of the insurance industry in this regard is we take the root cause analytics of ransomware attacks all over the world and bring those back to the qualification process to get insurance. So if, as an example, just to use homeowners, if people are deep fat frying turkeys in their living room, that's not something we want to continue. We would recommend against it. Similarly, multi-factor authentication, least privilege, network segmentation, if they're not in place, if you don't have smoke detectors, fire alarms, and a sprinkler system, things are going to happen more often and be worse. 
So the insurance company, as much as insurance industry, as much as it's vilified in some regards, is actually the very first thing bringing best practices and root cause analytics and telling people what they need to do to qualify for cyber insurance or business interruption insurance, kidnap and ransom. This is not just about a cyber policy. It's about enterprise risk management and what trigger events cause a business interruption or a, a loss of shipping materials or things like that. And those are that's the role of the insurance industry is to price to the market and bring those behaviors back to the front of the process to actually have less claims. Hartford Steam Boiler did that with Steam Boilers early back on and all the safety that came out of that with the insurance was really interesting. And I, I wanna stay on the theme of insurance markets. I personally find them fascinating because on a conference call with analyst Peter Safino, the CEO of AEG stated the following about rate hikes this week. We continue to carefully reduce cyber limits and are obtaining tighter terms and conditions to address increasing cyber loss trends. The rising threat associated with ransomware and the somatic nature of cyber risk generally. I'm reading that, read the transcript. I, I look at the reaction of the stock and I said, wait a second, this ransomware is a bigger problem that's actually being reported just based on the movement of the stock and the comments from the CEO. That raises the question, how widespread is that for corporations? And then me being me, I said, wait a second, AIG has some personal lines there. How big is ransomware for a high net worth individual where they're targeting them, for instance, going in through the kids Xbox or going in through an Alexa and getting data? Wait a second, you're talking about a, a merchant acquisition. I'm going to trade on this or wait a second. I know you're going here. I'm going to kidnap your family. Like, how widespread is this? So to, to break it into a couple of areas, the uh, the danger of ransomware, and I agree with, with the CEO of AIG and the others in the market who are talking is uh, we're seeing uh, that type of claim be much more common and the ransoms are going up and up and up. Uh, while I see that the average ransom is $250,000 or something like that, most of the cases I work, the ransoms are 5 million, 10 million, 20 million or above. Um, and that's paying a ransom and then you have to still recover your business and decrypt everything for whatever survives the decryption process. So on the corporate side, these are horrific events. And when you look at the ransoms, conversationally, that ransom is about 8% of the overall cost of the event. So it's looking at the fire and the water bill of the fire department and then realizing that's really not the biggest cost. It's all of the things you're going to have to do to put your house back together after a fire, which is why you want to have more preparation, better policies, procedures, better technologies, uh, tabletop exercises that, that I end up doing with boards all the time, or I'm called in late at night to do it for real. On the personal side, yes, highly successful individuals, and especially those who have access to knowledge of multi-billion dollar upcoming deals, are always a target for a different type of attack. The people that would do stock manipulation, that would attempt to manipulate and profit in a different way, or the kidnap uh, for highly, highly successful individuals, billionaires and, and the like. Also the same thing about socially engineering a, a family office of those families who over generations have risen to be highly successful, people will always try and get in and take advantage. Uh, the same thing can be of cyber and hardening the home networks and the family networks of successful individuals is a great defense of the corporate networks. We've found that sometimes they'll engage us to help with the boards or senior leadership teams 
to make sure their homes and family networks are secure as well as part of the overall effort to protect the individuals and protect the enterprise. It raises a question of liberty and freedom where people just take the ability to, you know, for, to, for granted to go to the grocery store or, or take their child to a baseball game or for an ice cream. They, they drive the same route. And you and I both know if you're a target, there's a, a chance of a bad actor that could be, oh, wait, they go this route every day to go to every Friday night at four o'clock to go for ice cream or the Little League game. They have that whole schedule raises the question of is it a common trend that individuals are underprepared for the potential risk they face then also being an insurance company learned all about this underinsured for potential risk that they're exposed to is that a common trend or is that just like a little outliner segment of the market well i think as as you focused on a bit for highly successful individuals or those that have again philosophical reasons that people target them the ceo of an oil company or a logging firm or something to that effect um, or that they're extremely outspoken on social media and, uh, uh, or something as the examples you brought up. You have to factor physical security in if you know that is a part of the life you're living for you and or your family, depending on the, the circumstances. I think most people in general uh, don't understand or, or have an eye on the insurance around that, but the issue is prevention is better than insurance. Yeah, you should have insurance to transfer a risk, but You'll never, if you have a house fire, you would have rather never had the house fire than be dealing with an insurance claim. So I would at least initially spend it on preparedness and hardening to reduce all the things. And then if you still feel needed, have transfer of risk through insurance, either on the personal family office or, of course, corporate level. Staying on the theme of risk, you have a, an individual, for instance, that runs a very prominent family office or a prominent individual and they're traveling to give a speech. It's been documented. It's been promoted all over the internet. Mr. and Mrs. John Doe is coming to speak at this conference in front of thousands of people well-known. From a cyber perspective, what kind of analysis do you have from a threat assessment for this individual moving? Do you have to look at the dark web? Do you have to look at chatter on social media if somebody might be trying to do something as an individual and then coordinate with the security team here or the rest? Or how does that work when this individual moves to a high-profile event? And so uh, in, in my history, besides cyber, I was also a terrorism watch officer for the U.S. Navy. It will depend on a couple of things. The threat matrix of who may be targeting that executive and for what reasons. There's a different uh, matrices if you are a, a senior executive of a multinational corporation and foreign intelligence services may be desiring information on you for either co competitive advantage or for blackmail or others. And if you're going into the country they control, uh, therefore in those cases, not taking your corporate laptop, having a laptop specifically for that trip, having a phone specifically for that trip that is used only for that trip and, and not used when you get back um, because you're going through a telecommunications company controlled by the person that wants the information about you, or you're in a hotel that is controlled by the intelligence service of the country you are visiting. So that's a different threat matrix than criminal threats, terrorism threats, or generic uh, or ambient kidnapping threats for highly successful families. So I think in terms of some of those, if you are a target of protests, then dark web and other things, yes, we do dossiers on individuals, families, or things like that. And there are many companies that help with the executive uh, protections, uh, ourselves included, and others when you're physically moving around. 
So yes, that should be taken into consideration and balanced. If you're the CEO of Apple or Microsoft and a highly successful individual, then you have a security team. However, even for executives in the hundreds of millions of range, uh, having the right preparation before a trip about your physical security, the environment you're going in and trip planning and emergency planning absolutely should be something that the the individual and their board consider making a part of that discussion. You mentioned you're on a overseas and you're on a, a third party network, then your home. How do you harden the communications into the home? Does that I've been around US presidents and I've seen those communication things when you move and that's that's impressive. And that, we'll just, I'll just use the word impressive for that. Are is there a that's called a consumer grade version of that for your your average high profile individual that goes in the house so all those communications are encrypted out of the house that all and I also think about a child puts an Alexa or a digital voice assistant in the bedroom or in the playroom or somewhere in the house. How can that all be encrypted because in case something is said that could be used to cause harm, either financial or physical. So the great news is that a lot of the companies with those devices, uh, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and others, do have a VPN set up so that the communication from that device to the to them is secured and it's in their write-ups. Now, the choice to have those devices in a particular room in your house at all, I defer to people's individual preferences. Uh, just know what you're choosing and how secure it is that an audio, you know, uh, taping of everything that happens in that room may or may not be available depending on the company's retention. In terms of the other components, there are a lot of commercial products. Our company works with Norton LifeLock for, for products for highly successful individuals and families. My teams deploy to mansions of individuals to do penetration testing and, and hardening of home networks. Uh, we also, from a on a personal level, on a corporate level, you want to keep the CEO and board members' corporate devices and communications protected VPN away from personal devices or communications. But there's mobile iron. There's a bunch of great technologies. I'm not espousing anyone in particular, but there are great technologies that are affordable for individuals, small businesses, and even large businesses. And if the executives or, or board members require it, doing an individual dark web and social media look to see what's available, open source social media uh, at dark web uh, would be good. So at least they know what is available about them or what is known and to make sure their passwords and other things haven't been compromised in one of the many breaches over history, that they're still not reusing those passwords. One thing that every one of these individuals and the family offices have in common they all have electrical power either going to the family office, going to the home, going to the resort home. How can the energy grid be secured so you can't get a bad actor that goes in there and says, oh, wait a second, I'm going to turn off the power. I'm going to kill the generator. I'm going to lock the doors. And in comes commandos. If the commando attack on your compound, because if you're at that level, you probably have a compound, then you probably also have a team of security people in the hut by the front gate or the back gate or the side gate or the uh, servant's gate. I don't know how many gates are on this compound. Uh, they're ready for the lights go out and the SEAL team comes in if you're at that level of play. Uh, those people have wonderfully set security teams uh, I'll, and, and many of my friends are on them. Uh, so I think in that regard for the extreme level, it is a different playing game and they do have specialized and 
quite pricey services for that. Within the realm of, of day-to-day for many of the Fortune 100 or Fortune 500, there are reasonably priced looks at home security from a physical and cyber perspective, uh, your family security, what's on the dark web and other things about you uh, that are achievable, a lot more so than people may think. Uh, but if you're hiring a team of two to six people to protect you 24-7, uh, that's a different level of, of concern. And uh, those people probably have a secure generator that while they could have Wi-Fi or VPN in, they've secured it. And that's one of the things about for the highly successful individuals, they should understand from a compound perspective or their homes and vacation homes, what are accesses to their security cameras? Can somebody get in and spy on them that way? Things like that, that would get an adversary, give an adversary an advantage. So those are the kind of things that at that level or even the levels below it that you would harden some of those things and make sure you pick validated product products that have secure engineering around them to protect you and your family. You think about it, everything today's connected. The pool pumps connected to the internet, and pool heaters connected to the internet. Do you ever see a circumstance where an individual gets like, I don't know, a new pool heater installed and somehow it gets connected unsecurely and then they get in that way. Have you seen any of things like that where they say, you get that call and I'm like, oh, Brian, uh, have we got a problem? <laughs> Can you get out of bed, please? Have you seen anything like that? So as, as Grayson knows and to share with our audience, I often call my team cyber smoke jumpers because we are called in the middle of the night to throw a backpack on and go, you know, j- jump out of a plane and help people. Um, what I'll say is not only have I seen, but it's been front page news. The target hack was caused by an HVAC, a uh, air conditioning vendor that gave access to a network. So for highly connected homes, there are secure ways to do it. I am a fan of the future of connectivity, uh, autonomous vehicles and other things. They need to be des- security by design and they need to be continually tested and, and hardened. Uh, so from that regard, I think if the pool system rides on the Wi-Fi of the house and there's not other checks and balances and network segmentation and it allows lateral movement, that's problematic. Uh, I've seen some movies where I don't think they could turn it up, boil it and kill the individual when they go for their midnight swim. However, you know, Hollywood does enjoy those types of things. I will say the attacks on refrigeration companies could spoil goods or vaccines in transit that uh, loss of products, produce, or the ability of a hospital to provide services are concerns. But those business interruptions, electricity, air conditioning, uh, those types of things, those groups should be taking the steps to have defense in depth and a graceful degradation of services for those types of emergency services. It's an area we all need more work in, but I know a lot of the executives in those industries, and I wanna speak to them for a split second, I know you've been working this for 20 years, no matter what the front page says. We just need to continue to work it, is my point. Not that the gas industry doesn't understand the threat of OT, IOT, and other things. We just all need to continue to work together in that regard. Are the budgets increasing for cybersecurity at these companies due to the the impact that they have on the U.S. economy? And not only the impact on the U.S. economy, but the impact on individuals' lives now because of the vaccines have to be distributed at a certain temperature? Over the years, budgets, in many cases, there's exceptions to every rule, so I'm not trying to answer the question for every single person listening to this. Yes, the IT budgets have increased and the IT security budgets have increased. 
one uh, data point was I had one CISO of a Fortune 50 company goes, now my problem isn't uh, begging for budget anymore. I have plenty of budget. Now it's the expectation of zero failures. And or the 50 to 60 to 100 different technologies that is required to protect an organization of that size and chief information security officers and their architects struggling with a myriad of somewhat overlapping and hopefully interlocking technologies. So I think it has changed quite a bit. And you see it in the supply chain attacks, the solar winds, the Office 365 on-prem. The highest level of adversary are targeting more of that supply chain capability. It raises the question, increased budgets. You look at a very tight labor market. McKinsey, for example, they can't hire tier one consultants. We're seeing it across the low end of the market and, and fast food, fast casual, and the higher end of upper corporate echelons for a variety of reasons. Are there enough individuals trained in in this in the security of cybersecurity to go to work for these teams to secure either the pipeline, secure the energy grids? Are there even enough talented individuals to do that? No, there aren't. But hopefully with what we're seeing with programs I've been involved in to start getting kids, uh, cyber savvy uh, kids to get children acclimated to being secure on the internet, to being protected on the internet, schools hopefully adopting much more of not only the technical training, but the ethical training earlier and earlier. I've been a guest speaker speaking on ethics to computer security programs for over 25 years. It's easy to get in once, to hack in and find one vulnerability. It's so much harder to secure an enterprise from thousands of those attacks and attackers every single day. We need to continue as computers become more a part of our life and more of our livelihood and physical safety are dependent upon computer systems. We need to look at the overall educational incentivization of the next generation. And I'm jealous, they will be smarter than me, they will have better tools than me, but they will be facing the same criminal threats, terrorism and concerns. So some things will change drastically. Some of them won't change at all, unfortunately. Overall, on a day-to-day on -day basis, what can an individual do to protect themselves from potential cybersecurity exploitations? A couple of quick hits is if it's critical to you, make sure it's backed up, whether it's your personal family photos, whether it is your small business uh, records, uh, those types of things. Make sure you have a backup that is secure and not accessible if the system administrator's credentials are compromised so that it is near line, offline or immutable, not able to be overwritten for the cloud services. Additionally, on the personal side, there's no free lunch. You didn't win a Spanish lottery. You didn't enter. Uh, there's not somebody in Nigeria that's going to send you $10 million. Uh, those kind of things is to a lot of times to be scammed. And I'm not talking about the business email compromise and the invoice things we were talking about earlier, but to be taken advantage of by a charlatan, they have to get you to engage in the scam, which means they've hung out some type of carrot that you think you're getting. When you have that feeling that you're getting something as a windfall from somebody you've never met, that's when you need to take that half a breath, stop and think, this is probably not what I think it is. This is probably not good. If a friend on Facebook suddenly needs bail because they're in a prison in Turkey, probably not. Double check that you don't have that friend twice and it's a fake account. 
um, those types of things. And I even got one of those. I, somebody created a fake account of one of my neighbors and then started uh, you know, explaining that he was on travel in Mexico and needed bail wired to him. So I walked over to his house and showed him the phone. Um, <laughs> it was uh, these types of things a lot of times. Uh, one final thought on that is everybody always laughs at the grammar and spelling errors in the Nigerian-oriented scams. 30 years later, they're not there by accident. They're there, and this is the evil part for you to understand how evil and smart these adversaries are. If you overlook the spelling and grammar errors, you're going to complete the scam. Those errors are to keep smart people and half-smart people from becoming a potential client that doesn't complete the transaction. They're kept there on purpose. They're kept there because you're too smart to be scammed. Therefore, they want to weed you out by the bad grammar in the first email. They don't want you to get 50% down the sales funnel and then waste their time. Highly, highly sophisticated. Once I understood that level of evil on the lowest level of scams, the rest of it really doesn't shock you after a while about how incessant these threats can be about learning about the people in your financial division if you're a company that they're looking to invoice scan. Sometimes they will sit in emails for months reading all the emails and understanding all the components. Um, other times they're trying to do a scam real quick, different adversaries. This is not one adversary, it is an ecosystem of evil. Many criminal groups targeting different levels of companies and individuals. Are these foreign governments? Is this La Costa Nosta 4.0 internet? Is this organized individuals and groups where they, they're basically pirates and they split the bounty? Because it seems everything that you've said, these individuals are highly, highly organized and highly disciplined. So to me, there has to be a structure behind this. At the top levels, yes. This is, uh, this is the next iteration of organized crime, either traditional groups, uh, the mafia around the world, the triads and others, uh, adopting new technologies and new methodologies. Other times these are born in the cloud criminals, but, and sometimes nation state inspired uh, targeting of, uh, as was indicated by the DOJ's recent uh, activities, the Chinese coming and trying to steal information about vaccines or research which they often do, so the Iranians and others. The other levels of this, there are smash and grab kids at the bottom of it. So there's a whole seven layer cake of evil um, of highly organized nation state oriented groups, highly organized international cybercrime or traditional criminals doing human trafficking and other things, using cyber uh, to lure their victims or traffic their victims. And then there's disorganized groups, and then there's individuals just, you know, running around parking lots, jingling door handles. So that's the point. It's not a, I hate the kid in the hoodie moniker on this. Hasn't been that for 30 years. It still isn't. Uh, it is a, a continent of evil, an ecosystem of all the different size groups, all the different types of threats. You've got an ecosystem of smash and grabbers, highly sophisticated individuals that are extremely bank, well bankrolled by bad actors and terrorists putting that all together we've got a massive cyber challenge coming to us as we get older and stuff gets more sophisticated more connected putting it together what is the future of cybersecurity? do we go on offense and we and we show up with our general patent tanks and say you know what no mas we got patent tanks now 
The thing I'll say about uh, the offense versus defense, and this has been a discussion since in the early 90s when I started the Navy's program, there is a way for collaborative defense and the appropriate rule of law and the appropriate application of diplomacy and or physical force should it be needed. So in that context, I would say that at a national level with a clear and present danger of an adversary launching attacks from a safe haven and taking hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars out of our country by extorting our citizens, not only the corporation for its money, hospitals, churches, municipalities, gas pipelines, at a certain point, if we can and we will determine the safe havens from which they operate, I've talked to senators who visited me during my various jobs, including at, at the Microsoft Cybercrime Center, that we should use a whole government approach. We should use tariffs and diplomacy and other things to make those countries give those criminals up. If the attacks are truly nation state driven, then the response in either a cyber response or a physical one is almost a traditional discussion like 9-11 in Afghanistan. The physical attack led to a massive deployment of a 20-year troop deployment into an Afghanistan that just ended because of a physical attack that killed over 3,000 of our citizens on one given day. So at a certain point, if the damage is enough and it threatens our people's, any nation, and I speak to and from all the nations, um, if the populace can't live its day-to-day -day life and is under threat, the government must respond in some significant way. But it must be controlled and overseen. This is not a time for somebody to, to, to suddenly anoint themselves a U.S. Navy SEAL without any training and go out and try and, and, try and get their own vengeance. This is not that kind of movie. Uh, so I, I, I want to support the discussion, but dissuade vigilantism. Please listen to Brian. Don't do something stupid. Don't say, oh, I want to be a TikTok star. I'm going to go over there and I'm, I'm going to be neighborhood sealed. Not going to work. You're going to get in trouble. The Justice Department is going to come on you down like a ton of bricks. And you could end up leading to a global security issue. So please don't do it to become famous. It's not not worth the risk to the nation. It's not worth the risk to you for your five minutes of fame. Invent something. You could be famous for life. You don't have to do the nonsense. Brian, this has been really interesting. It's been really eye-opening. You know, I, I have the honor of calling you a friend and knowing you well. So if I have an issue, I have your cell phone and I can call you up. Brian, I got an issue. But for the individuals and, and corporations that are listening that don't have the relationship with you and they said, wait a second, we need to look at everything at our company. We need to look at our executives' homes. And they want to get in touch with you and the team at Aon. How can they go about contacting you to learn all about the cyber and what they can do to protect their family offices, their individual homes, and their corporations? One, absolutely. Please reach out to uh, Grayson and the team on this blog because that discussion is something we want to continue to support. And you've been nice enough with SAE and yourself to give a venue for that. So I'd love to see some of those questions and topics come back to continue this discussion, either in postings or in future blog discussions, because we want to hear from those groups. If people want to reach out to me directly, LinkedIn is always a good way. I publish a lot of materials to help there, or they can reach out uh, through the blog and we'll get them an email or a contact information. But LinkedIn is always pretty good. Oh, fantastic. And for our listeners, in the show notes, we will post a link to 
to Aeon Cyber for you to get in touch with them there. And Brian, as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation where we, we learned a lot, what would you like our listeners to take away with them? Is it be prepared or what is that thing? Because you hit on so many really important topics. Yes, be prepared, uh, Semper Paratus, to, to quote my uh, Coast Guard friends. The rational application of enterprise risk management. Yes, cyber is an issue, but it's part of an overall running of your business and your family and your family office um, that is in the context of all the other concerns and threats and controls you face. And therefore, I would think to take the urgency, but demystify the emotion, bring it back to a reasonable enterprise risk management discussion. And as a final thought to those younger in the community who are coming up, there are places for you to use your skills in the commercial world, to help in the academic world, and also should it be your desire to help in national service. I got my start in the Navy uh, and the US government intelligence community. There are wonderful opportunities for you to do a greater good with the skills you have without going to the dark side. So uh, both for executives and for burgeoning uh, cybersecurity experts, it's the ethics that got you to where you are now and that executive presence that will drive cyber. As Brian said so elegantly, do good, please. Your, your, your country needs you. You'll be doing an incredible thing. You'll learn a lot. You'll have a positive impact on society. Because today is tomorrow. Tomorrow is today. And the future is cybersecurity. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. Be sure to join us next time when I sit down with Lisa Clavelu, Senior Director, Group Quality, Pratt & Whitney. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next by emailing us at podcast at sae.org. That's podcast at sae.org. And be sure to follow us on LinkedIn to stay connected and to continue the conversation. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, 